This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. Seventh-day Adventists can be found worldwide. According to their website, Adventist.org, by 30 September 2020, they had 92,186 churches, 72,749 companies, and 21,760,076 church members. Their Sabbath is from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, and according to their website, Quote, Seventh-day Adventist beliefs are meant to permeate your whole life, growing out of scriptures that paint a compelling portrait of God. You are invited to explore, experience, and know the one who desires to make us whole. End quote. This is Decoding Cults, and I am your host, Palsy. You are listening to Millerism and the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In two of our previous episodes, I had referred to the Waco standoff, and I wanted to tell you that story, but the more I researched, the further back I had to go to understand how they ended up where they did. Thus, I ended up right at the beginning, which is the start of the Millerite movement and the creation of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In this episode, I will take you back to the origin of this branch of Christianity. Trust me, there is some very interesting and head-shaking information there. William Miller, son of Captain William Miller and his wife Paulina, was born on 15 February 1782 in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. William was the eldest of 16 children and had four brothers and 11 sisters. Remember, this was the 1700s, so very large families were not uncommon for that time. When William was about four years old, his family moved to the small hamlet of Lowhampton in New York. Paulina homeschooled her children and, being a pious Baptist, included this in their schooling. Her father, Alnathan Phelps, who was a Baptist minister, would oftentimes come to their home on Sundays and preach to the family. When William was nine, the East Pulteney District School opened and he was enrolled there. The Millers were not very well off. In the book Midnight Cry by F.D. Nicol, he describes these times as, quote, In common with most early settlers, Miller lived in a home blessed with poverty. Every dollar that could be secured must be placed against the mortgage. There was no money for books. They might be desirable, but they were luxuries. Even candles could only be used in a sparing way. 
end quote. There is no record of a tertiary education, but we know that he met Lucy Smith, fell in love, and married her on 29 June 1803. The pair moved to Poltney in Vermont, which was Lucy's hometown. It was here where he was introduced to deism. According to Oxford, deism is a, quote, belief in a god who created the universe, but does not govern worldly events, does not answer prayers, and has no direct involvement in human affairs, end quote. There were also records that he had become a Freemason. William later became a constable and was elected deputy sheriff in 1809. He later resigned from his post and joined the military. A few things happened that changed his trajectory back to Christianity. In 1812, he was drafted to fight in the War of 1812 between the United States and Great Britain. Later that same year, both his father and one of his sisters became very ill and both died within three days from one another in that December. During the war, he was exposed to many atrocities. There was one time where he was very close to an explosion. Three of his men were wounded and one other one was killed, but he was completely unharmed. Having seen and lived through many horrific scenes during the war, Miller started to believe that there must have been some greater being looking after him. Upon his discharge from the military on 18 June 1815, he returned to his family and then moved from Pulteney back to Lowhampton. He bought a farm and built a two-story home for his family. Fun fact, this house is still standing today and is seen as a heritage site by the Adventist Heritage Ministry. William wanted to be a farmer and live a quiet life, but his internal conflict between deism and Christianity plagued him. He started attending church again, and he studied the Bible verse by verse, starting with Genesis. During his studies, he concluded that the second coming of Christ would happen by 1843. This was a mere 25 years from 1818 when he had made the discovery. He used Daniel 8 verse 14, which states, quote, I heard the other angel answer, It will continue for 2,300 evenings and mornings, during which sacrifices will not be offered. Then the temple will be restored. End quote. He used the day-year principle, which is basically a method used by some to interpret Bible prophecy by calculating one year for each day mentioned. William calculated that the 70 weeks from the date of the prophecy would land roughly between 1843 and 1844. He then wrote a 20-point document which explained his findings. Although he concluded in 1818 that the second coming was imminent, he did not immediately share his findings, but continued to study this until 1823 to ensure that his calculations were correct. He then referred to the second coming as the second advent. According to the Collins Dictionary, advent is, quote, the coming of an important event, invention, or situation is the fact of starting or coming into existence, end quote. About the second advent, it says, quote, the prophesied return of Christ to earth at the last judgment, end quote. The thing is, Depending on the Bible verse, a day could mean a week, a year, or a thousand years. 
and in some places, a week also equates to a year. So trying to predict any date will always turn out inaccurate. By 1931, he resigned as a Freemason and started lecturing his findings. Around 1832, he submitted 16 articles to a Christian newspaper around his findings. At first, not many people were open to his conclusion about the Second Coming, but gradually, people started to believe in his message. William was being invited to more and more places to lecture. One of these invitations was pretty significant. Joshua Vaughan Himes, from the Chardon Street Chapel in Boston, extended an invitation. At first, he was a bit sceptical, but the more he listened, the more he believed. By 1842, Joshua started publishing a fortnightly paper called Signs of the Times around these teachings. This publication reached many more people, and thus Millerism was born. The Sign of the Times is now a monthly magazine, which is published by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. William also drew sketches backing his claims. As the end of times drew closer, many people wanted more structured text around the lectures. In 1842, William published Evidence from Scripture and History of the Second Coming of Christ. This book consisted of 18 of his lectures. In each of these lectures, he uses various passages from the Bible to back up his claims, and, at the end of the book, is a supplement that breaks down the timeline with verses and events from the Bible. Four of the followers of the Millerite movement were Ellen G. White, James Springer White, Joseph Bates, and John Nevins Andrews. They will become important later in the episode. Millerites across the country were all preparing for the Second Coming, but most of them wanted a more concrete date. William did not predict a specific day, but by using the beginning of the Gregorian year, he said that it would happen sometime between 21 March 1843 and 21 March 1844. In a letter he declared, quote, If Christ comes, as we expect, we will sing the song of victory soon. If not, we will watch and pray and preach until he comes, for soon our time and all of the prophetic days will have been filled. End quote. Many believers sold off all of their belongings and gave everything to the church in anticipation of the second advent. The 21st came and went without anything significant happening. This date is now known in Adventist circles as the first disappointment. The date was then recalculated by some of the followers and said to be on 18 April 1844. Again, this day passed with nothing happening. Some people moved away from Millerism, but others believed that they had entered the period just before Christ would come again. In August 1844, Samuel S. Snow, a man who was converted back to Christianity after reading his brother's copy of William's book, announced that the actual date of the Second Coming was in fact the 22nd of October 1844. Many believers got together at their churches to be together, looking towards the sky for the great event. When nothing happened again, they lost all hope. This period was then referred to by the Millerites as the Great Disappointment. Following the Great Disappointment, 
Malarites became fragmented in their beliefs. Some even splintered off from the group to create their own sets of beliefs. Another belief that sprung from this is that Jesus had moved from the first heavenly kingdom and went to the second heavenly kingdom. And it is from here that he started judging all of the lives of people on earth. They further believed that when his judgment is completed, he would return to us. This would become important to the church later on. Just on a side note, the Seventh-day Sabbath is the day of rest as indicated in the Bible. According to Britannica.com, quote, The Jewish Sabbath, from Hebrew Shabbat, to rest, is observed throughout the year on the seventh day of the week, Saturday, end quote. Some Seventh-day Sabbath followers further believe that the Sabbath actually begins at sunset on Friday and ends at sunset on Saturday. Ellen Gould Harmon and her twin sister Elizabeth Harmon were born on 26 November 1827 into a devout Methodist family in Maine. Her father was a hatter, which is a hat maker, and all of the family assisted him with this. At the age of nine, Ellen and her sister were walking home one day when an older student threw a rock right at her face. Back in the 1800s, even a simple injury could be fatal. During this time, things like cocaine were used for ailments such as toothaches and heroin for coughs. So it's not a surprise that Ellen was severely ill after this incident and was even believed to be on her deathbed. It was during this time that Ellen first prayed hard and gave herself over to God, such as a nine-year-old could do. She would also suffer from further ailments leading from this injury, which led to her not being able to attend school anymore. Over the next few years, Ellen would go back and forth about her faith, mostly believing that she was not a good enough person to receive God's grace. In the book Life Sketches of James White and Ellen G. White, 1880, she states, quote, no one conversed with me on the subject of my soul's salvation, and no one prayed with me. I felt that Christians were so far removed from me, so much nobler and purer than myself, that I dared not approach them on the subject that engrossed my thoughts, and was ashamed to reveal the lost and wretched condition of my heart. End quote. In March 1840, William Miller was in Maine, giving one of his lectures at a church. The Harmon family attended one of these lectures and were immediately convinced that these teachings were true. In my opinion, the second coming, which is a promise that you would live forever in heaven without any pain or suffering, would be very inviting to a young girl of 13 who was chronically ill. Ellen was baptized on 26 June 1842 after having attended a Methodist camp in 1841 and received full membership in the Chestnut Street Methodist Episcopal Church. In the book Life Sketches of James White and Ellen G. White, she states, quote, I felt that henceforth I was not of this world, but had risen from a watery grave into a newness of life. End quote. Soon after this, a new pastor took over the ministry. He was not at all on board with the Millerite views of a few of his congregants and set out to expel those who were. He put together committees to investigate what he deemed, quote, anti-Methodist conduct, end quote. In August 1843, 
The Harmon family was tried and were then expelled from the church. This affected Ellen in a big way as she had just seemed to find peace in her religion and was now afraid for her salvation again. Then Ellen had two dreams that would change her outlook on religion. The first one was about a temple where throngs of people were running towards it to be saved. At first she wanted to wait it out but soon felt that she needed to get to the temple. When she entered the temple, she saw that it was held up by one pillar, and at the base of the pillar was a lamb. She knew that she had to confess her sins to the lamb, but by the time she reached it, it was too late. All of the light had disappeared, and she was left alone in complete darkness. This dream shook her to the core. Her second dream was a short while later. She was sitting in despair when a guide took her to see Jesus. Her description of this in life sketches was, quote, In a moment I stood before Jesus. There was no mistaking that beautiful countenance. Such radiant expression of benevolence and majesty could belong to no other. As his gaze rested upon me, I knew at once that he was acquainted with every circumstance of my life and all my inner thoughts and feelings, end quote. After this, she was steadfast in her faith and believed that God had a special purpose for her. After the great disappointment, Ellen would have numerous visions from God and would write many books on this matter. These books are still used by Seventh-day Adventists to this day. When Ellen's visions would come, a few things would happen as described by those who had witnessed them. 1. When a vision was about to come, she would say glory loudly three times. 2. She would feel very faint for a short while and then be filled with strength where she would start to pace up and down flailing her arms. 3. She would stop breathing for the entirety of the vision but still had a pulse. 4. Her eyes would stay open and she wouldn't blink. 5. When the vision was finished, she would come to and spell out D-A-R-K, and then faint. Once all of this was over, she would tell those around her what she had seen, and they would write it down. An interesting thing about Ellen, she was named one of the 100 most significant Americans of all time by the Smithsonian Magazine. James Springer White was born in Maine on 4 August 1821 to deeply devout parents. James was a very sickly child. In the book Life Incidents, he states, quote, And what had greatly added to my difficulties and cut off the hopes of my life, when less than three years old, I had what the doctors called worm fever, resulting in fits, which turned my eyes and nearly destroyed my sight. End quote. James's ailments prohibited him from attending school. His parents were also of the opinion that he would never be able to leave the farm or have a normal life. He was baptized at the age of 15, but this was mainly to please his father, who was a deacon. By the age of 16, he had fully recovered from his illness, but was now far behind his fellow scholars. He applied himself and eventually received a certificate in teaching. Upon receiving this, he moved to another town to further his studies and to teach. He was very passionate about education. James's parents had attended a camp where Miller lectures were discussed, and they were completely swayed by his ideas. When James returned home one day, 
his mother told him about this. He was not at all convinced and even referred to it as, quote, wild fanaticism, end quote. In an effort to understand what they believed in, James started to study the Bible. This completely changed his life's trajectory. He found God and became a preacher, traveling around to various cities and conferences to spread his message. He was also introduced to the Seventh-day Sabbath, which made sense to him, so he adopted this view as well. James met Ellen at one of these conferences. At first, he was not convinced of her visions, but had later begun to believe that they were indeed true. The couple courted for about a year and got married on 30 August 1846. They had four sons, but only two grew up to be adults. This also was not unusual for the time. The Whites ended up boarding with a family in 1849. Their landlord was John Nevins Andrews. He himself was a Millerite and had begun to observe the Seventh-day Sabbath in 1845. Joseph Bates was born on 8 July 1792. Bates started out as a cabin boy in 1807, and then, after being forced to serve in the War of 1812, and even being a prisoner for a while, he went back to a career in sailing, even becoming captain. On one of his voyages, his wife packed a Bible for him. He started reading it, and was immediately converted to Christianity. He had seen so many atrocities in his young life and became a firm abolitionist. The abolition movement was a large group of people who were seeking to get rid of slavery in America. Being a sailor, he saw the effects of poor rations on his fellow seamen and became a vegetarian. He also abstained from alcohol, tobacco and caffeine. Now, this may not seem like a big thing, but back then... None of those were seen as unhealthy in any way. Joseph had heard about Ellen's visions, but was very skeptical about them. Then, one day, she had a vision right in front of him. This made him an instant believer. James and Ellen White, along with Joseph Bates and John Andrews, would become the initial founders of the group that would eventually become the Seventh-day Adventist Church. After one of Ellen's visions, James started a periodical called The Present Truth, which then helped to bring more people around to their views on Christianity. They would also travel across the country, setting up Bible conferences and spreading their teachings. According to Adventist.org, their main message consisted of the following, quote, Christ's second coming is imminent. It will be seen by all the world, and it will be literal, not metaphorical. The seventh day, Saturday, is God's Sabbath. The fourth commandment's instruction to celebrate and keep it remains literal to this day, along with the rest of the Ten Commandments. God does not eternally torment sinners, but rather the dead sleep until the second coming and the last judgment. Christ now ministers in the heavenly sanctuary, thereby mediating to us the benefits of his death on the cross saving us by his righteousness and not our own deeds. See Hebrews 8. In the last day of this earth, Christians will be tempted by apostasy, but be called back to divine truth. The third angel message of Revelation 14 and the relatively small remnant of faithful believers will answer this call. This remnant, 
would be marked by a recurrence of the prophetic ministry, and many people will display the prophetic gift and proclaim the good news. See Joel 2.28 and Acts 2.17. End quote. In the early 1850s, they had around 15 ministers. Many people took to their message, and they grew to a membership of around 3,500. Out of this growth, a need arose to become more formalized. On 21 May 1863, they formally established themselves as a church in Battle Creek, Michigan, and created a governing body called the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. This body still governs today, and the headquarters are now in Silver Spring, Maryland. In 1866, they started their own healthcare institution. They also wanted to ensure that children were taught according to their beliefs, and thus, the first Seventh-day Adventist school was opened in 1872. Another interesting fact is that Will Keith Kellogg, the creator of Kellogg's Cornflakes, was not only raised as a Seventh-day Adventist, but also attended the school. Another interesting fact that I came across was that cornflakes were originally designed to be an aphrodisiac, although others claim it was created to stop sexual desires and, quote, avoid the evils of masturbation, end quote. Another famous Seventh-day Adventist is Desmond Doss. If the name doesn't sound familiar to you, then maybe the movie Hackshaw Ridge does. It was based on his story. Now that they had a strong foothold in the US with around 7,500 members, they decided to expand their message across the globe. This came about when Ellen had another vision that they needed to tell the world. The first person to go on this missionary quest was John Andrews. He was tasked to go to Switzerland. He was successful there and even started a printing press in that country. Ellen was said to have traveled to numerous countries, including South Africa, to help set up ministries. The church grew to the denomination that we now know. The Seventh-day Adventists have 28 fundamental beliefs. 1. Holy Scripture, in that they believe that the Bible was written through divine inspiration from God. 2. The Trinity, they believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is all one God. 3. The Father, that God the Father is the Creator and the Sovereign over all of creation. 4. The Son, they believe that the Son became incarnate in Jesus and that He is humanity's true salvation. He showed people God's power through His miracles, died on the cross for our sins, was risen from the dead, and is ministering in heaven on our behalf. 5. The Holy Spirit They believe, quote, God the Eternal Spirit was active with the Father and the Son in creation, incarnation, and redemption, end quote. 6. Creation They believe that God created the entire universe. They also believe that God created heaven and earth and everything in it within six days and rested on the seventh. But to them, the biblical day equates to one week. 7. The nature of humanity. Here they describe how man and woman is created in God's image. But because of disobedience by our first parents, I assume they are referring to Adam and Eve here, we are weak and prone to evil and can only be saved through the love of God. 
8. The Great Controversy They believe that the conflict between Satan and God, which led to a rebellion, is now on earth, but God will be there to assist his people in this controversy. 9. The Life, Death and Resurrection of Christ They believe, quote, In Christ's life of perfect obedience to God's will, his suffering, death and resurrection, God provided the only means of atonement for human sin, so that those by faith accept his atonement may have eternal life, and the whole creation may better understand the infinite and holy love of the Creator. End quote. 10. The Experience of Salvation They believe that we were all born in sin, and only through God's infinite love and mercy will we be saved. 11. Growing in Christ Quote, as we give ourselves in loving service to those around us and in witnessing to His salvation, His constant presence with us through the Spirit transforms every moment and every task into a spiritual experience. End quote. 12. The Church They believe that the Church is the body of Christ, and those who worship there are a community of believers. 13. The Remnant and its Mission this is a belief that they must always be ready for the last days and the second coming of Christ. 14. Unity in the body of Christ. They believe that all who believe regardless of race, culture, gender and status are all equal. 15. Baptism. They believe that baptism is the quote, death of our sin and of our purpose to walk in a newness of life, end quote. They also believe that it is by full body immersion into water. 16. The Lord's Supper This is their belief in communion. They will also at times perform foot washing to show their humility. 17. Spiritual Gifts and Ministries They believe that God gives each of them a special gift which they need to use for, quote, the good of the church and of humanity, end quote. 18. The gift of prophecy. They believe that, quote, the scriptures testify that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. This gift is an identifying mark on the remnant church, and we believe it was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. End quote. 18. The law of God. They believe in the Ten Commandments, and also the exemplary life of Christ and strive to follow this. 20. The Sabbath. They believe that the seventh day of creation was a day of rest and should be observed as such. It also goes on to say, quote, Joyful observance of this holy time from evening to evening, sunset to sunset, is a celebration of God's creative and redemptive act. End quote. 21. Stewardship. They believe that they were entrusted to be God's stewards. This to them is a privilege, and they are responsible for the proper use of all of God's blessings, including the earth and its resources. 22. Christian Behavior They believe that in order to be godly people, they need to, quote, involve ourselves in only those things that will produce Christ-like purity, health, and joy in our lives, end quote. This includes dressing modestly and getting enough exercise and rest eat healthily and do not eat any food that is said to be unclean in the Bible, for example pork. They are also to abstain from alcohol, tobacco, drugs and narcotics. 
There are even those that avoid anything that contains caffeine. 23. Marriage and the family. To them, marriage is only between a man and a woman. You're also not allowed to get divorced and get remarried. This is seen as adultery. You can, however, get divorced if your spouse commits adultery. But children must be raised to love and obey the Lord. 24. Christ's Ministry in the Heavenly Sanctuary They believe there is a sanctuary in heaven where Christ ministers on behalf of those who believe and follow the laws of God. 25. The Second Coming of Christ They also refer to this as the Second Advent. They state that there is no specific date, but they should be ready at all times. 26. Death and Resurrection They believe that the cost of sin is death, but when Christ comes back, those who lived a righteous life will be resurrected. 27. The Millennium and the End of Sin This, they believe, is the thousand-year period where the world will be desolate and the devil will rule. After this period, they will all be freed from sin forever. And 28. The New Earth They believe that this will be the eternal home for those who were redeemed and where they will live without suffering in God's presence. Some of the other practices include avoiding competitive sport and non-religious programs on TV. They are also discouraged from going to the movies, as it is believed that this type of entertainment is partially responsible for the terrible moral state of the world. They do not perform same-sex marriages, They can't even perform marriages between church members and non-church members. They are against abortion, believe in abstinence before marriage, and disapproves when a couple lives together if they are not wed. Young people even need to be chaperoned when meeting one another. They are also opposed to body piercings and tattoos. Even wearing jewelry is a no-no. Thank you for indulging me in the history of this denomination. In our next episode, we will look at a little group that branched off from them. We will be looking at the origins of the Davidians, who would later become the Branch Davidians. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further discussion on, or if there is a cult that you want to hear about, please email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA, and if you order, tell them I sent you for a 5% discount. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.